Welcome to Only God Rescued Me. I'm Lisa Meister, your host, and I'm an, a survivor of satanic ritual abuse. And today we are going to interview Victor Bruce. It is interesting to hear from the men. We've heard from a couple already. We had an interview with Brian and a couple with John. And their journey is very similar to women, but it has its own struggles and, and difficulties. So hearing from the men is, is really important. I'm really glad that Bruce was able to share with us today, and I know that you will be very interested in his story. If you would like to contribute to this podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.onlygod.com. And you can donate there. And thank you to all the wonderful people who have been donating to me. I'm trying to save up enough money to get a new computer, which I greatly need. So I appreciate everyone that's been helping. And I hope you really enjoy this interview with Bruce. Hello, Bruce. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thank you. So can you tell our viewers about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am a um, born-again Christian. Um, I was raised in the Lutheran Church, um, in the Christian faith, and as an adult, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm from um, northern Ohio, up on Lake Erie, a small town, and um, I am a um, SRA, child, well, a child occult ritual abuse survivor, or uh, I guess the appropriate terms that everybody's using now is SRA, which would be satanic ritual abuse survivor. But I like to use child occult ritual abuse survivor because it automatically designates, you know, what my experience was, without, you know, just being a satanic ritual abuse, a, a satanic ritually abused, I should say. Right. So how old were you when it happened? Um, I was 12 years old, and um, when I was 12 years old, um, I was taken with my cousin, who was 10 years old at the time, uh, to a supposed wedding reception for people in her church. And um, now this side of the family um, has, um, uh, which I didn't know at the time, because we were, you know, deep in the dysfunction and codependency of this side of the family that were uh, generational occultists. And the coven that they belonged to was actually in the church that they went to, which I believe was a, a United Church of Christ, which I've heard there are a lot, and have been, a lot of uh, covens and occult working through that denomination for, for generations. Wow. So it was not your parents. It, no. That was part of this group, but it was part of your family. Yes, it was part of my family on my father's side. So that would be uh, first cousins uh, from me, and then it would be um, also cousins on my father's side. And they happened to live right next door to us. And I believe that the same thing that happened to me as a 12-year-old boy uh, happened to my father when he was a boy or a teenager. Um, I've had a lot of therapy and ministry over the years and different counseling um, venues, mo you know, mostly Christian, of course. But I've come to understand through all the symptoms and signs and things that 
my father exhibited a lot of the behaviors that I do as a survivor. <clears throat> oh, wow. So, yeah, so that was the general consensus that I'd come to is that I don't believe my father was, you know, an outright um, committed member to be in the occult, like I would assume, you know, a person would have to be. But of course, a lot of times what they do is the children are the most important um, asset they have because they can mind control them and shape them to choose to be in the occult inadvertently just by coercion and being mind controlled that, you know, and if they don't have a will of their own to resist such a thing, then they, you know, they make false commitments out of duress and things to where they're controlled and, and, um, you know, and they not only can be MK ultra, but they can be, have a suedo like fake commitment to where they think that they're being committed part of it too. And so they start facilitating things, you know, that the occult people would do to them to get a reaction out of them that would look like, you know, they are a, a committed occult member. Right. Did, did you ever get to talk to your dad about that? No, I never did. Um, unfortunately, all of the memories didn't come to me until um, both my parents had passed on and I had moved away from there to another state. And then everything started coming to me, memories and things. And, and God just provided amazing ways for me to understand, you know, what had happened to me because I had had lots of therapy prior to that, including, um, well, when it started at 16 years old, I started exhibiting major depression symptoms and there was really no basis for it. And nobody could figure out where it was coming from because as a child, you know, prior to 12, you know, I was an extremely contented and happy boy. I mean, I was having fun. Um, I, I had a great sense of humor. I had f friends and playmates and, you know, life was great. So when I came down with major depression at 16, it was a real mystery and I had no memory of what happened to me until I moved away from there as an adult. And uh, in between that time, I was in and out of different therapies. I was on medications for depression and I was told I was bipolar from the time I was 16 until um, I believe in my late 30s or early 40s when I got miraculously delivered from all these uh, pharmacia medications that they were targeting me with. So basically um, when I was 12 then, um, that was such a traumatic experience that I had no memory of it, you know, like any um, trauma survivor as SRA would. would. So I had nothing to relate to. And when I came down with the major depression at 16, even though we were a Christian, we were, I was raised in the Lutheran faith and we were always in church or a part of something in the church. But, you know, the Lutheran church at that time, it's not really spirit filled and they're not, they don't have the power and anointing to, you know, or believe in miracles that people can be delivered from oppression and things like that. So I just kind of lived with this and and people would pray and the, the minister would come around and pray when I got really depressed. And, but the depression got worse and I had, um, I had to have a series of ECT shock treatments 
from 16 to uh, 18 years old because the depression was so bad Wow! and I couldn't function anymore. And the, the, the doctor that was treating me, he was actually an Israeli child psychiatrist at the Cleveland Clinic. And he was one of the supposedly the best in the country at that time. And um, so I had great treatment, but he felt that I wouldn't respond to being medicated, which was really interesting. So he tried these um, series of shock treatments, which did help alleviate the anxiety edge and tension, you know, that I was constantly feeling and the reactive uh, depression. But as soon as I went back home, from this uh, facility, which was actually like a hotel, and it was actually fun to be there because I was with other children that were traumatized in different ways, and I felt, you know, like it was like on a, at a summer camp or something. But when I got back home, nothing had changed, and the same people that were from the occult side of the family were there to control me and to manipulate me so that I wouldn't remember, and uh, and that meant, you know, being drugged and medicated. And then with my cousin, who was younger than I was, you know, being older now, you know, being led into a lifestyle of drinking and drugs and partying so that I had no memory whatsoever of any of this until I moved away from there as an adult. Wow. Oh, you've had a long, hard journey. Well, it really has been, um, except that, you know, the Lord, uh, Jesus has been with me every step of the way. And um, even when I didn't know that and didn't realize that, you know, I still had that still small voice in me to realize, you know, that what, whatever happened to me or why, wherever I was depressed, you know, it wasn't God's will for my life. And I just always had that hope, you know, that uh, God's ways are different and better. And I just wanted to be in his will. And sure enough, you know, um, with just a little mustard seed of faith, you know, things happen, especially when I moved away from that town where I'd lived, you know, since childhood, that uh, everything just started opening up the memories and the right people that had also experienced SRA, people I ran into and met, and it was really quite remarkable. So that's when everything started happening for me, and I, you know, would finally get seasons from from most of this stuff, although I still contend with it now as an adult just through you know being threats having the threats you know that the occult people do you know wanting to control and manipulate and you know let they want to think that they have um you know whatever they can do to get in your life it seems like that's what they do you know these days because of the strong delusion that you know with this antichrist spirit in the world right now that's just the way it is you know it's like battling like zombies almost, you know, this zombie mentality, you know, when you come, when I come across it, you know, that I recognize that, you know, they're always there, they're targeting me, they're influencing my family, you know, they want to get an outcome, you know, something, but, but they can't because, you know, I am, I belong to God, I am a child of God, and I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. And so they don't know that. I mean, I guess they, well, they don't believe it. So they don't understand that, you know, they don't have the authority and the power of their devil, you know, that they can take me out anymore. So it's just a lot of warfare and things like that, that I contend with. So how do you stay courageous in that? Hmm. Well, 
Um, I stay in the word and I, um, I keep the anointing. I make sure that I'm, I have the anointing of God so that I have the power of God so that I'm not, um, you know, that I'm not believing lies or I'm not, you know, because, you know, you, you, as a Christian, you know, you can't be deceived if you're, if you, if you're in the truth, you know, so. And if you confess your sins and and you're, um, you know, you're in right relationship with God, you're not going to be a person. A Christian is not going to be deceived to um, to believe a lie. So it's knowing, you know, who I belong to, who I've trusted in and, um, you know, just believing that, um, you know, God has me and um Yes, I'm here. Lost you for a second. So it's knowing what I lost you there. Oh, it's just knowing, knowing that, um, you know, that God has me. I belong to God. You know, I'm a new, new person in Christ. And, you know, the devil's power um, has no authority over me anymore under the blood of Jesus. Um, you know, that power or any authority the devil had over me has been made null and no effect. So. You I know, like I like how you bring that up because it's a really important point because Jesus broke it on the cross. That's right. And sometimes survivors forget that and and feel like we you know we got to go through all these renunciation prayers and right you know but like the redemptive work to break all that happened. On yes, the it's cross. a curse. It's a curse, and we're no longer under the curse. Right. But the thing is, if we're not walking in the freedom that God has given us in Christ, you know, to believe the truth and to, you know, to not be deceived, you know, to be um, believing lies or sinning, you know, to be living in sin or trusting by faith in our situations, you know, then we can be deceived. We can become deceived. And so that would be the, the enemy's greatest advantage, of course. So basically, it's a daily faith walk, you know, um, just realizing that um, Jesus has broken the curse from us that, you know, that it has no more effect on us. I mean, that's the whole point and purpose of the cross and of Jesus Christ, you know, to redeem us from our sins and that we would be with God forever, you know, in right relationship as children of God and not children of wrath, you know, children of the devil or children of the world or, you know, in our fallen nature. So, so, you know, it was finished on the cross when Jesus said it is finished. He meant it. I mean, that was it. And that was fair, fair game, fair warning to the devil. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really, you know, I think if you have to go around renouncing everything and, and it's important, you know, especially with family lineage and stuff, especially if you're from a Illuminati, you know, uh, bloodline and all of that to where, you know, you have to not be in agreement with those things and break that off. But it's not something that you have to do over and over and over, uh, from what I understand. Right. Um, yeah. Now I don't, I don't really have any of those Illuminati bloodline families, although I go back on my mother's side of the family, uh, to the early 1600s in this country, um, uh, Puritans and, uh, a lot of the a lot of them, you know, most of them, or perhaps all of them, had no affiliation with any of the Illuminati bloodline families at that time, or occult families, or uh, whatever they call that. 
So um, I was told that, in fact, in the night I was ritually abused as a child, you know, that they even knew, um, you know, my family lineage. It was kind of like like you would order a pizza, okay? And so here I was at this event, which I looked like it was supposed to be a wedding reception. And I'm there, and it's the wedding reception is just a cover for the actual event that it is. And what it was, was the September 7th Satanic Ritual Night of Feast and Marriage to the Beast. And um, that was the, uh, the actual event that was happening there. And so um, I really, um, you know, really was not aware or had no understanding of these spiritual things. And when they, when they started coming against me by first drugging me, um, you know, it was very disorientating to know that there was this whole other realm of evil, you know, that as a child, it's like, you know, you have no conception of it, that there could be such evil. You know, so you think you want to think the best and everything. But as as this uh, satanic ritual night kept progressing, you know, it was just more, um, you know, it just kept compounding on itself, the depth and level of of evil that I was experiencing. And so it was hard to to keep a grasp of reality um, at some point, you know, to realize that this um this wasn't of God and this was of the devil. Did you realize it that night? Do you think? Oh, I did. Yes. Um, basically. Um, so what happened was um, I was at this wedding reception. It was, um, it was out in the country. It was in, um, it was in a country uh, bar. It was like a barn and it was outside of the city and um, basically, I started noticing at first strange things, you know, bringing props and things in and, and the people were acting kind of aloof and they were bringing their own food. And I thought, well, I've never been to a wedding reception where they bring their own food. Uh, and I later came to realize that they were bringing their own food because the food had was cannibalized. It had, uh, you know, it had... Um, people in it, flesh, you know, human flesh, and they were making recipes to, um, you know, for the power or whatever they call that, you know, to get out of eating this food with the remains of uh, dead people in it, humans. So I kept noticing all these strange things, and I had an uncomfortable feeling, but I had no idea to relate it to anything. So everything was overwhelming to me. Um, and then I had people before I was drugged, there were people near me saying to other people, like, but without looking at them, like, get out, get out now. And it's like, if you don't get out now, just get out. And I'm thinking, like, why would they be saying that and looking away, you know, and they weren't looking at me. And I'm thinking, like, well, now, should I leave? What are they talking about? I thought, well, maybe they're having a personal argument or something. So I kept noticing all these strange things at first, which led to the. The first incident of being drugged, which was when I uh, had asked for a Coke from the bar that they had set up, the bartender, and I was sitting at the table alone and uh, drinking my Coke, and I started to feel different and weird, and I thought, well, there's something strange about this Coke. Maybe it's it's got something in it, or it's flat, or it's stale. I don't know. So... Um, 
So I, I mentioned it to my cousin who um, was, you know, flirting and having fun with her people she knew there because all these, most of these people were from her church and the supposed wedding reception was from people in her church. And um, a couple of weeks prior to this event, I was with my cousin and we were driving around with uh, her, her babysitter or her father to where we met other children that were supposedly a part visiting people in her church. And this one of the young men was my age and he was um, out from out of town and he was supposedly a relative and he was staying with the grandparents or relatives and just one of those things, even though school was starting soon and he would be staying for that. Well, it turned out that, you know, being all these people being in, the, in this coven, in this church, which happened to be the oldest church in the city on the town square, it's still there today, um, that this young man was um, meant to be sacrificed. And later in the evening, because of everything that transpired, I was, I was told and cursed that I ruined their satanic wedding or ritual night because of my, um, you know, um, not being compliant, um, even, even while drugged and tortured. So this young man at the, toward the end of the evening, had told me that, um, he would, he had hoped to be sacrificed and murdered and that it would be a pleasure and that he would be, um, you know, it would be an honor because these people cared for him and they took good care of him and he loved them. And that's, that's just what he felt to do. And, and there was nothing that was wrong with any of this that had happened. And then I realized also that my cousin, you know, before I had been drugged for the first time with the drink, that my cousin had a whole different life. I mean, she turned into another person to where, uh, which I come to realize, you know, was being totally mind controlled. And so she's, they switched her into this mind controlled person that she was. And she actually had, she referred to people as mother and father, and she had a whole nother family, you know, and she referred to them as that. And she had parents and, and um, so she was, I realized, and it was very frightening to me to realize, you know, this was all before being drugged, that she um, was, um, you know, had a, um, a whole nother persona and it was, it was absolutely overwhelming. And then that led up to, um, realizing that my drink had been had a drug in it and alcohol in it so I went to the bartender to say inquire you know what was wrong with the coke coca-cola I was drinking and he looked up at me and very matter-of-factly said oh um we put uh, we put this alcohol in it we thought you'd like that isn't that nice and I and then I thought wow you know who talks to a 12 year old that way and so so it was all all very overwhelming and everything just everything kept compounding, you know, the betrayals and the befriending and and um, the whole whole mind control attitude was was that I would, you know, they just kind of automatically accepted me as one of them. And, um, you know, uh, they, they they made it look like even though I know I'm not, it's like I think like them, I'm one of them. And um you know, it was all to get me, it was all the mind control torture they were putting on me kind of a thing. So I had this drink and I went back to my table and, um, you know, a, a lot of, some of my memories are still very fragmented, the ones that I remember. And then there's other memories that I still don't remember, but I only have uh, 
fragmented parts that I can guess at what what they might mean, which I, I guess is, you know, totally reliable for any child occult ritual abuse survivor. Yeah. So yes, exactly. So um, in this fragmented memory, then um, I do remember that um, I was. Um, um, uh, you know, very disoriented. And at some point I, I started drinking myself and asking for it, but that was only after I was already drugged and drunk. And how I can explain that is as an adult, when I had moved away and I was getting the memories back and, um, I was in ministry, uh, being counseled, um, it, came to realize I had this very strong memory. Uh, well, I guess I should say first, I had a, a real strong guilt that there was like an accusation that would come against me that said, you know, you, you knew you wanted to drink this, you, you wanted to do this, this was on you. And I thought, and it made me feel guilty because I couldn't, you know, I had nothing to reference to it, you know, and I thought, wow, this is really weird. I can't imagine that I would do that. You know, I knew that I had been drugged and had alcohol in my drink, but I did not know that. So um, basically, um, uh, what happened was I started getting a memory because I asked God to help me. I said, God, I need I'm stuck here. I can't imagine that that would be because if that were true, why would I feel so guilty about it? You know, I mean, under the circumstances, I just it didn't seem right. So I started to get a memory after I prayed and asked God about it and the memory was where I was on the floor uh, right then after drinking this Coke to where I was on the floor and I was licking the pe uh, people's shoes with my tongue like a dog. And I thought, why in the world would I, a 12 year old Christian boy, you know, be on the floor licking people's shoes, you know, and even if it was just alcohol, it just doesn't make any sense. And so then the, um, the counselor uh, was telling me that uh, at that time, it was 1974, and there was a drug that had just come out called Gabber, Gabardine or Gabba something, to where it was a, a drug that makes people compliant. It's kind of like it was the first forerunner of the date rape drug. And yeah. Um, yeah, and so uh, they were telling me, well, Bruce, they put that in your drink or part, some of it anyway, to affect you because that's what they do. That's what you do. It's like whenever something's suggested of you to do, then you would do it. So basically what they were telling me was, you know, they would tell me to do something and then I would just do it. You know, they make a suggestion. So because of that memory, that was extremely helpful for me to understand the, you know, the circumstances that would happen after that, you know, as to why I things, why I would do what, I, why I was doing what I was doing, which was because I was under a strong suggestive hypnotic, uh, but yet I wasn't facilitating to be a part of any of the rituals or things, which, which this event was kind of like a convention where you had all the different groups of satanic, uh, you know, from the little, from the bottom to the top, you know, you had the, um, uh, the, you know, the witches, the Satanists, the, the, uh, the goth people on all the way up to the hardcore occultists, Luciferians, um, you know, warlocks and the whole bit. 
So it was kind of like a convention in that respect. And there were like, like you'd be at a fair and it's like there were props and things and, you know, for fun, they'd have caskets there and they would put the children in the caskets and you could hear them scream and, and, um, you know, and I don't know what was in the casket. I refused to get in the casket. That's another memory I have to where in the casket, you know, they have bugs or animals or God only knows. Um, so I didn't do that because I, I resisted a lot of it because I was, I knew that I belonged to God even at 12 years old. I mean, I was a Christian. I, I had an epiphany of Jesus Christ when I was six years old of who he was and, you know, that um, he was the Savior. And I actually believed on the Lord when I was six, uh, but then made a more public um, commitment as an adult, a young man uh, around um, 19 years old. So um, anyway, in this event, then um, the, uh, the circumstances kept compounding to where, you know, there were so many rituals happening and so much um, um, perversion and debauchery that, you know, it became like, you know, they're pushing me, wanting me to do things and be a part of things. And I'm resisting in my, you know, in my soul, in my spirit, even though I'm drugged and not in my right mind. Uh, so it made it very difficult. And, um, and then I have another memory of, um, you know, there's lots of marijuana smoke at this point in the, in the room or, or around certain people, and I'm getting whiffs of that, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well, you know, drugged at this point, so um, I'm talking to a woman, and she's, she must have been on uh, LSD, and she's laughing, I'm making her laugh hysterically, and all of a sudden, she, she drops dead, and, and they haul her off to the side in the corner and just leave her there like a, like a caveman, you know, just pick her up by her hair. And, and I was under the impression that, well, she's not dead. She's just passed out and she'll come back later. So then I started walking around some of these um, rooms, you know, in the condition I was in. And I, there I saw a freezer and in the freezer they had... Um, there were dead bodies and um, that they were keeping for the rituals. And so, um, you know, the whole atmosphere of this place was like, like a portal of hell, you know, being managed in this small space, you know, of this country bar to where, you know, the power of the demons could be worked through these people and what they were doing through all this. So it was very well organized and it was very, you know, even though I was drugged, it was extremely traumatizing, even when I didn't have any sense of reality anymore. And um, so um, I'm looking at that and then I'm, I went into the kitchen and my cousin is there and she was 10 years old. Now she was raised and her family in the occult. She had dedications, um, I believe, when she was younger. And I was very much a part of her life as a very small child, since a small child. So I was privileged to be in her house and to know things that they were doing and her mother and how evil they were what they were doing and one of the things that was really evil was the sister of my cousin who was my age um, had died mysteriously at six years old in 1966 on a satanic ritual day and um, 
back to remember that it was very mysterious how she died and there were lots of cover stories and I won't get into all those details right now but to say that uh, that's what it was and that's how they do these things within the occult family you know people die or they're sacrificed and they make it to look like for the outside you know that there's something else happened or it happened this way and and um and as we could see from last weekend with the um the uh, concert in Texas to where eight people were died. I mean, we can see outright, you know, to know and understand that that was definitely a satanic ritual happening right out in the open to where the demons manifested and those people were killed. They died. So it's the same thing within the occult families now, except that we see now that it's, you know, right out in the open. There's no hiding it. But for me, back in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, this was all like a secret world, like going in the secret garden. And it was like just our, you know, it was it was peculiar to me and us. But, you know, there was always a rationalization. There was always a um, there was always a codependency on my father's side that, you know, there would be a, a reasoning or a rationalization that it would all just we just have to understand that, you know, that my cousin's mother is not right. And, um, you know, there's something wrong with her and we just, you know, we have to try to be helpful and, and that's just the way it is. But really she had the persona of mommy dearest. And, um, so when the sister died at that young age, um, you know, it was, it was, it really sparked a, uh, new understanding of what's, what was really happening in that house because it was, um, it was very, strange circumstances that you know considering that they had the best doctors their house was clean and they were healthy all the time got their shots and their checkups and in fact my cousin um from from the time uh i was probably six until her mother died in 1975 she was not even allowed in our house because our house was considered too dirty it had too many germs and we couldn't she couldn't wasn't allowed to play in my house so i always had to go to her house oh wow so yeah this was quite a setup there it was quite the setup yes and so the mother then um would fly into these rages you know when she didn't get her way and i i would so i would spend all my time you know summer time you know playing with her and it was wonderful time i mean we lived out on the lake shore it was a wonderful place to grow up and be a child but it was, you know, the late 60s and nobody, if somebody had a problem in the neighborhood or family, it's like, you just don't talk about it. You know, you just kind of pretend it's something else and, and whatnot. And, and uh, where I lived, it was like a resort area. So a lot of the people that lived there were only there in the summertime and they weren't interested in some dysfunctional mother and her children. So um, basically then... Um, I, um, you know, had developed this um, understanding, you know, that their family and my family are different and we have different ways of, of, you know, being that, you know, where in my family, it was very common. I mean, I felt loved. I felt like I, I had a normal childhood and my parents loved me and they did the best for me. And I was having a wonderful time you know, being a, a child, being a, a little boy. And uh, but the more they kept involving me next door, especially after the sister died, the older sister, 
then I became like her full-time playmate. Um, and that's when things really started going downhill. This was all before the uh, event at 12 years old where I was taken to the um, Feast of the Beast, Marriage of the Beast ritual night. So um, in that um, time, then um, I would be at their house playing and the mother would go into these rages, psychotic rages, where she would close the windows and shut the drapes and she'd start, I was made to sit at the door and I wouldn't be allowed to leave uh, and I'd have to sit there. And of course, being a little boy, I thought, well, maybe I, you know, I just was, I was concerned too, you know, for my cousin. And so the mother would yell and scream and threaten her and occasionally she'd hit her and she'd do you know, fake things to intimidate her. And sometimes she'd lock her in a attic closet where the lock was on the outside, you know, and um, God only knows what went on in there when I wasn't there. But um, anyway, um, yeah, the mother would go into these rages and, and different things. And it was very, um, you know, bizarre to where my mother, you know, started picking up on all this because it was impossible to ignore now. It just kept escalating. And so it came to a head to where my mother actually had to leave my father for a period of time as she gave him an ultimatum, you know, that, you know, that, you know, this was endangering me and that there was, this was, you know, codependent, it was unhealthy. And we just, you know, we don't, need to be a part of this we can't you know we my mother tried to be nice and we were always nice to involve them but they were they were totally estranged from interacting with us other than being next door neighbors um, so they never want to go to church with us they never want to have you know parties or anything or church events nothing you know going places doing things together the only one that was allowed to do anything with them was me and with the daughter where we would go places and do things. And so everything was protected. Everything was orchestrated, you know, that, uh, that this was the way they wanted it. And of course it was affecting our family now. And so my mother had left and, um, and she had an ultimatum, you know, it's like either them or us, you know, but it can't be both. So that went on for a while. And, um, and so, you know, we, my father tried and everything, but he was so, codependent on them and mind controlled himself you know from this generational situation of them being in the occult that you know he couldn't break free from the codependency of it you know whatever they would say to do and then like like well we can't disappoint them you know everything was manipulated and you know just like what witchcraft is really that's what witchcraft is manipulation so um that all went on. And then um, finally, uh, the mother developed cancer. She was a very heavy smoker and she went in hospital and she died. And um, then the next year uh, in uh, 74, then was the year that I was taken to the occult ritual night. Her father, in the meantime, had worked um, uh, worked away from the home and he had to quit his job to take, stay home and take care of his daughter. And so now, um, you know, I had, I was no longer um, playing with my own friends that I had made. You know, I had lots of little friends, boyfriends, and, you know, like kids have at that age. But I, you know, I was now spending all my time with her because, you know, she was so disadvantaged with her mother dying and she was so, 
abused. And so it just really became a thing. And um, also, I might add that um, before all that happened, um, one of the things was my cousin wanted to run away. And nobody, I couldn't get my parents to understand, you know, the severity of the situation, um, even though they could see the surface manifestations of it to which my mother, you know, made the ultimatum. But um, at that time, or before that time, uh, I was a couple of years younger, and uh, my cousin wanted to run away from home. And, um, and I thought, well, she, I must have been like seven, six or seven. And she wanted to run away because she couldn't take the abuse anymore. And I'm like, well, uh, sure, I'm going to help you run away, but where are we going to go? And, and I said, uh, well, first I said, you know, let's have my parents help and take care. And she said, no, you can't tell them, you know, like a, like a typical abused child. It's like you can't tell them because, you know, my mother will find out. So I have to run away. And, of course, we were very young and naive at that time. So uh, we made a plan and I helped her to run, to run away and she had a Barbie suitcase and she filled it with her clothes and I snuck out of the house at night and like nine or 10 o'clock and in the summer and helped her climb out the window and, and we were going to run away and then, um, you know, and then we went to the house next door, which was a summer lake house and it had a boat house and a a beach house and we tried going in those places and we were sitting there waiting and it was just like well there's nowhere to go you know and there's nobody's going to help you and nobody's going to help us and and it was really it just became a moment to where uh, from what i remember that um you know it was just kind of like a god moment to where you know realizing that you know only god can help us now or help you now and we have to believe that you know and and so that's the only faith we had to hope with. And then when we realized nobody in the flesh was going to help, you know, no person, I ended up taking her back to her house, and that was that. So um, there were all these little, you know, situations happening because of the abuse and the, you know, the underlying occult ritual um, things that were going on there that they were a part of in their coven. So that, you know, in the occult, you have to com commit more and more. And if you don't, you know, if you have a position in the occult and you don't commit more and more, then they take you out. So in this family, you know, for them, they were a middle upper class family. So, um, you know, the, for them, I guess their coven was the minister in the church. He was a part of it. And later, this particular minister, as part of the evidence that I have against them, um, is that this minister was arrested in the um, early, late eight, eight, uh, late 80s, one of the first cases uh, in the news to where this minister was arrested uh, in Atlantic City, New Jersey for soliciting underaged prost male prostitutes. And so he was totally defrocked. It was in the newspaper. And but nobody talked about it. You know, they had to put it in the news and then he disappeared. You know, I guess he went to prison for a while or something. Uh, and then uh, and then he conveniently died. They met, you know, they made him die. But, you know, they have to disclose everything. So that was in the news. That was a factual thing. So this church back in the early to mid 70s, as a forerunner to what we see today happening, this was already happening in the early 70s. This church was totally taken over by an occult coven. 
they were operating in the the minister was a part of it uh, most of the church the uh, the children's ministries and church was um, they had marked everybody they had they gave positions of the people to groom and mark the children so which ones were part of the occult families and which ones weren't and which ones um, you know they could facilitate to use and manipulate and it was it was a real operation and um, and another sign of that was uh, in my neighborhood, which, uh, as I mentioned before, was uh, on the lakeshore. It was uh, like a summer resort kind of a neighborhood. Middle upper class people lived there. And uh, in, our, in our neighborhood then, um, it, was, um, it wasn't like a neighborhood where you have houses in front of you or behind you. It was on the lakeshore, so all the houses were along the lake. So down the street along the lake was another house where I was taken to right before this event as uh, I guess I was 11 years old. And my cousin took me there. It was Labor Day weekend, again, approaching the, um, the um, uh, September 7th uh, Feast and Marriage to the Beast ritual nighttime. And so in this house, which we presumed was owned by the uh, amusement park that was at the end of the road, uh, of the street, um, which if I mentioned the name, I'm, I'm sure everybody would know where, where it was. So this particular house was um, um, owned by the amusement park company at that time, and they used it for people to work that worked there that they could use the house in the summer while the park was open. So in this particular time, uh, my cousin took me to the house. There were two two children, a boy and a girl that were our age, and we met them on the beach. And they were just like us. And they said, well, where are you staying? And they told us where they were staying. And my cousin seemed to know all about it. So she said, well, we're going to go visit them tomorrow. And we visited them. And I was taken into this house in my neighborhood. And um, every room of the house was stuffed and filled with children and teenagers. They were sitting on the floor, on the beds, on the furniture, in the corners, in the closets, in the bathrooms. And they were children and teenagers everywhere. And they all were traumatized looking or mind controlled, uh, if you will. And um, it was extremely traumatizing thing. And the story told to me at the time was that they were, um, that they were, um, uh, that they were, They were uh, employees' children from the amusement park, but having been to the park all summer, you know, we, there were not, there's never that many children th that you wouldn't have known about them, you know. So uh, it was all very mysterious. And then the children were taken away uh, in the early morning hours, and my cousin wanted me to come and see it in white trucks. And um, the white trucks had no, no, in, no advertising or anything on them. And I come to find out years later uh, from uh, one of my protégés that help, was immense help to me in my coming to understand the satanic ritual abuse I experienced, uh, Gregory Reed. And he um, explained to me that um, the occult, they have a, um, they have a system where they, um, they have trucks and the trucks go around the country, the United States 24 seven, 365 days a year. And they're transporting abducted children and children raised and groomed for the occult. 
and they go around all over the country and they get to the right ritual nights in the right places at the right time and they drop the children off uh, to be used in ritual nights or for dedications or to be placed in an occult family. Some of them might be murdered. Some of them might be placed to have a life in an occult family to be groomed, you know, for positions. And this is what this is. And it just goes around the country 365 days a year, these trucks. And and so I, you know, was coming to understand all these things. It was really bizarre to, um, again, having no point of reference until the actual ritual night I was taken to, to understand what it all meant. So uh, basically, I, I found out at an early, earlier than most, you know, back in the 70s, you know, what this was all about, with this, you know, the occult takeover of the uh, of the country and the world, you know, the for the coming uh, Antichrist spirit for the Antichrist that's coming. So, um, you know, I, I kind of had this uh, understanding, you know, good versus evil more than most people's to when I was taken to this ritual night, you know, I, I certainly had no, nothing in me that wanted any part of that, you know, even while I was drugged, I mean, there was nothing exciting or pleasurable, it was all offensive to me and, and there was nothing I wanted of it. So, um, you know, that made the occult people very mad because that means I'm not compliant. So another point in the evening, then I was, um, I was taken, um, I was put in a chokehold and I was grabbed by a motorcycle gang member, like a Hell's Angels type. And he put, he put me in a chokehold, um, put a gun to my head and dragged me in a back room while another one took my cousin, put her in a chokehold, put a knife to her throat and put her right in front of me. And so there we were in a back room and um, at any moment, you know, thinking this um, this gun's going to go off and I'm going to be dead. Um, and then there was a man sitting at a desk dressed in black, which I, I guess was a warlock. And he made some decisions and there was a little bit of talking and he made a decision. And then all of a sudden we were let go. And I guess from what I understand was, you know, I had seen too much. And so now it was either, you know, either I'm going to be a part of this or, or, you know, or they're going to take you out, you know, kind of a thing. So there had to be some way, you know, that I, you know, cause you can't, you can't be a witness to something like that and just walk away. So, um, so basically that was kind of what that was. And, um, and so at that point I, um, because of the fragmentation, I kind of skip over things a little bit. But before that happens, um, before I was drugged, I had actually, when I was noticing the crazy things happening, I actually called the from a payphone my mother to tell her I wanted to come home. Could she come pick me up? And she said, no. She said, why don't you just stay there until the rest of this couldn't be that much longer? And I said, well, I don't know. I think it's going to be a really long evening, which it was. It was like I was there for like seven, eight hours. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it went on really late till the morning. So that, of course, I couldn't leave. Um, so so I couldn't convey to my mother, you know, what I was sensing. I just said, it's just kind of weird here, you know. And 
minutes. He said, oh, it couldn't be that. So so that was that. And then I hung up and then um, skipping back now forward to where I was a little bit. Um, so um, uh, after that, it happened or right before that, it happened to where I was in the, um, you know, had the gun to my head um, and I had explored the building. Um, I was um, I wandered outside. I was going to go sit in the car. And so they gave me the keys and I guess the car was open and I was sitting in the car and I think I had passed out. And then I started wandering around the countryside and I was staggering and falling down and and I was already completely mind controlled. And I kept I kept feeling like like I was demonized for being a victim, like it was my fault. And it's like no, nobody better find out, you know, if they found out I'm drunk, it's my fault. You know, that, that's how they had programmed me with this demonization to where I felt like, oh, no, I can't let it. I mean, I was still stuck. Like the trauma was so bad that I was feeling like, you know, I couldn't couldn't process it all to where I felt like it hadn't really happened yet. And it's like I was trying to think I was still normal, but knowing I wasn't normal anymore. And so I'm wandering around and I even knocked on a door and nobody was home and I'm falling down. And so I resigned myself to like, well, I, you know, I can't just lay on the side of this road here because they'll find me and what will they do to me? So I'll just go back. You know, I was using a little bit of reasoning I had. So I went back to the bar, the country bar, and um, and they let me in. And of course, they wanted to me to make sure I wanted to be in. Of course, you know, it was all kind of a mind control tactic, you know, to get me to say, of course, I want to be here, you know, which, of course, I didn't. But um, anyway, it was just all that kind of mind control. And so um, then I'm back in and, you know, and then I'm getting the impression that it's kind of hopeless, you know, like um, and when when they started locking the doors from the uh, from the outside and there were men on the outside of the bar and they had machine guns and stuff and they had guns, they were protecting everybody inside. Um, from, from anybody coming in, then I realized, you know, it's like, wow, I, I don't think I'm going to get out of here alive. I think, you know, this is pretty much it, you know. So, you know, I'm praying as best I can and all of that. And um, and it was really, um, you know, it was just really, it was like the twilight zone, you know, to think that, you know, a few hours ago, I'm just this normal 12-year-old Christian boy, and here I'm having to think all these things and experiencing all these horrendously traumatic things, you know, it's, it was just totally, it's kind of like the same way of like 9-11 in New York City when the Twin Towers were hit, you know, it's like it was, it was a beautiful sunny day, everybody's going to work, you know, nothing bad's going to happen today, and then all of a sudden the worst thing that nobody could ever imagine has happened. You know, and it's absolutely hell on earth. Right. So that was that was kind of what I experienced. It was the same situation to where I felt like that. It's like, wow, this is just like I can't even I just I can't even process any of this. It's impossible. Um, so um, so then I'm resigning myself that I'm stuck there and I'm wandering around again. And my cousin is in the kitchen and there's an older man. And he's show, he's um, showing her how to cut up body parts, and there were containers there and things because they they brought all this stuff in, and so she was being groomed, if you can believe it, to um, to to be part of the cleanup crew. I guess that's what they call it. 
And so the children, um, when they're raised and committed in the occult like that, these are the assignments that they have in their other personality, you know, because she was totally, as I said, totally a different person, totally mind controlled to where I didn't even recognize her. And here she was being taught how to chop up body parts for disposal in the kitchen. And there were containers there and things, and I'm, I didn't look at them. But um, soon after that, then, uh, in, the, uh, in the venue of the bar area, uh, my cousin was standing there, and I was nearby, and, and they were trying to engage me. She had um, something they were showing her, some, some one of the other children her age, that they, somebody had given them to hold. And here it was a collection of, um, now this is all graphic stuff, and it, so this is, um, hopefully everybody's understood that by now. <laughs> but I'm not ashamed to talk about how evil this is. I feel it's important because this is what they count on, is that you don't talk about it. And, the, and, the, and the church and the body of Christ can't, you know, understand this level of depravity, then what we're seeing is they're dealing with it, we are dealing with it, from the after effect of it. So we have to understand how they do all this, including, you know, the Epstein uh, pedophile island and all of that that's never been resolved. So basically then um, I'm standing there with my cousin and uh, some other children her age, and they had a collection of human testicles that they had cut off the victims. And they had kept, kept them in formaldehyde and they were hanging on a, a pegboard and they were showing them and laughing and, you know, just making all kinds of very perverted, perverse jokes, you know, that these came from the victims and they were, you know, apparently from all different ages and whatever. And, um, you know, and, and I was told that, you know, this, I was intimated that this would be good for me, you know, that this was going to be, it was kind of like a V2K thing now because of the demonic presence was so strong, you know, that, you know, I was hearing things and I was interpreting things they were saying demonically, you know, through V to K and all that kind of stuff. And so I was, it was intimated that, you know, this is what they intend for me, you know, that I would make a commitment so that, you know, anything to get me committed. And, and that for me, that would mean, you know, lust of the flesh, pleasures of the flesh, and, you know, trying to corrupt me that way. And uh, so that, that was a pretty traumatic thing. And then that led to the next thing to where um, uh, there was a, a man at the bar where, where the, they were serving the drinks and I had the Coke and he started um, molesting me and assaulting me. And he was, um, you know, sodomizing me, trying to sodomize me in a most vicious way. And there happened to be a knife there that he wouldn't stop. You know, and I told him to stop and I couldn't get away from him. So I picked up the knife and I hacked it on his wrist, on his hand. Um, at least at least that's the memory I have. Now, it could have been that they created all that, but I don't believe it to be that. And so um, in order to get him to stop, that's what I had to do. And he was bleeding profusely and he stopped. <laughs> that made him stop. And so um, at that point, they have doctors there and triage. And so they took care of him and, um, you know, they um, they did everything. Uh, you know, they gave him a story in case, you know, got out so that he could be covered with a fake story as to what happened to him. And, you know, and that was that. And he, didn't, he was a little disappointed, but, uh, you know, life went, seemed to go on. 
And um, then, um, you know, then the rituals were starting and there were, um, you know, a lot of uh, different commitments and things, including uh, a baby that I guess was born and murdered that was close by. Now, I wasn't privileged to be right there, but I was nearby. I mean, it was, you know, there was no way to escape all the things that were happening. So, um, so all these rituals were happening. Uh, there were marriages of children to, you know, the uh, satanic marriages with the children and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, another thing that I remember was my cousin was up on the stage and she was being, it was either my cousin or, or her double, because sometimes they have doubles that they groom. And she was being brutally, brutally raped. Um, and it was extremely traumatic. And it was, she was just, you know, there's nothing she could do about it, this poor girl. So I just have all these kinds of memories. And then um, uh, that evening, and then that led to the next thing to where... Um, um, they had a, they unfolded a giant pentagram on the dance floor and the, um, people were sitting around, you know, they had like an altar call to come and sit around the pentagram. And it was another, another dedication. Of course, I had absolutely no idea what was going on at this point. I was already drugged out of my mind, you know, traumatized beyond belief. Um, you know, there was no rationalizing or reasoning anything at this point. So I was sitting there. And I guess I was still under the hypnotic suggestion. They were asking people to come, come and sit and come. And, and I just, you know, nonchalantly got up and walked and sat down. Um, now, mind you, I was extremely drugged and at this point. So it was not something where I was in my right mind. So um, I was sitting there and I, around the pentagram with the other people and just looking at them and then you know, and they, they sat cross-legged and then I sat cross-legged or tried to or something. And then the next thing I know, a, a marijuana joint was being passed around. And so then, um, then I had, um, uh, I had partaken of that. And at that point I became totally insane. Um, I, I had no memories of anything except spinning out of control and, and, um, that's where everything kind of stopped for quite a while because I, you know, I no longer had any control over myself whatsoever. So at that point, um, I have other fragmented memories that I won't go into at this right now. Um, but um, uh, I don't know if this is reasoning with any other, uh, if this reason resonates with any other uh, child occult ritual abuse survivors but um, hopefully it would. But uh, this is what happened to me. This is my experience. And um, it's not something I got from a movie or read, read about in a book. Uh, this actually happened to me. And if you asked me this five years ago or 10 years ago, it would, I would be exactly the same story as I'm saying right now. And uh, anyway, uh, fast forward then. Um, Toward the end of the evening, then, uh, they had the final sacrifice was um, they had a homeless man that I had met with my cousin in the car. He was downtown, and they, uh, the Coven occult people picked him up and befriended him. And, you know, they're going to help him out. That's how they do it. 
kind of make it seem like they're their friend, but basically they were just keeping him and holding him for the ritual night. So they brought him the ritual night, and so this was like the last um, last uh, satanic ritual. And so they took this homeless man and they tied him up, and they put him like on a stake, and they and they lit him on fire, and he was burning alive. Wow. Yeah, he was burning alive, and um, as he was dying. Then uh, they had they had excrement and all kinds of foul things, and they were throwing it at him. And, and all of a sudden, um, it seemed to be the greatest point in the evening for them, except that they were hoping, I was told, that Satan himself would show up. That would be like their ultimate compliment if they could get Satan to show up. So at this particular point then, um, they were throwing excrement at this dying man burning alive on a stake. And, of course, they had exhaust fans and everything. I mean, but still, the room was pretty smoky. And so um, he was dying, and then he kind of slumped to the ground when he was dead. But but they shrieked, and they were, as he was dying, until he died, they were shrieking like demons in the whole room. All these people, they were just screaming and shrieking and laughing with delight like demons at this man dying until he died. And yeah, then it's after- like a bloodlust thing yes yes it brought them great pleasure yeah yeah uh great satisfaction and then after he was dead and the fire was out later um a witch came in high heels and no clothes on or anything and she came and she kneeled over him and urinated on the corpse so this was the kind of depravity that i'm experiencing and um and that was pretty much the end of the evening. And then um, in order to leave the evening, they, they had to curse me more. They did um, voodoo rituals and cursings on me. They role-played my family like so that I would talk and say it so I wouldn't divulge anything that happened to me. Of course, I was still under the trance. And so they kept doing magic and spells on me to get me to come around, you know, to be sober. And, they, and that was done through fear. You know, it was kind of bringing me back to fear so that I would remember and then they started controlling me you know and then they did these role-playing like people pretended to be my family and so that I would know what to say and not to say um and then you know it's just I mean they were cursing me and everything and they were showing me what my life would be like into the future um you know I was like seeing all this it was some kind of demonic I'm not sure how they did that but uh, they were telling me that, you know, if I'm not compliant at this age or that age or another age, then all these things were going to happen to me. And I have to say, uh, some of those things happened. You know, I've had family members, you know, that were made to be to die and were facilitated to die and, um, you know, different things. I mean, I have lots of stories there, too, you know, to where they've infiltrated my family and they have a they have a they have a you know, they're following them too so and my family doesn't really understand all that like i do but um but i think they're coming around to the idea of what this all is but um anyway uh so i left there and we left and we're driving home with the babysitter from the church uh and she's totally drunk and we're we're driving through red lights we're smashing into mailboxes and everything else and finally getting home (laughs) and um and I never remember that night 
not a thing about it until I actually moved away from there as an adult out of state to another state. I had no memory of that night whatsoever. But I manifested, you know, through body memories and being controlled and manipulated by them to where I, you know, I was, everything I did was controlled and orchestrated to what I would facilitate, you know, so that I wouldn't remember. And, um, and that's pretty much how it was. Did your mom pick up on anything when you got home? No, no, no. Um, it was late. And so, so I was, I just had a few words and she said, I'll talk to you in the morning then. It's like, yes. So that's how it was. And then, Mm. um, yeah. So the, I mean, the, the, every detail of how I would react was scripted and rehearsed uh, at the ritual night. So that, and it was like enforced through magic and spells so that I wouldn't, or couldn't divulge anything. That's how, how mind controlled I was. Right. So how many years did, once you started facing it, did it take to feel like God's healing? Like, do you feel healed? Do you feel still in process? Um, I feel healed, although I feel like the pro- in the process of, of, of the healing that I have to daily um, take up my cross and I have to agree with God, you know, in the um, in who I am, you know, in, in Christ, you know, that I'm not to identify with and believe, you know, and to uh, because sometimes, you know, through um, circumstances and that, you know, they can things can get emotional and can get distracted and believe lies, you know, through stress and the trauma that they try to put in your uh, SRA's life, you know. So in those ways, um, you know, I have to take thoughts captive. I have to believe the truth. And I like to, I like to always come back to in my relationship with God is that um, I agree when I agree with God, whatever he's showing me in the word at any given time in his, in his word, the Bible, or, or by the Holy Spirit, that I agree with it. And, uh, and, and so as a, a believer, as a Christian, that's where I get my most freedom is because I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the word of God. I believe in the power and the anointing of God. And so whenever God shows me something in the Holy Spirit or through the word, uh, I'm going to agree with it. And then I'm going to know, you know, I do know that, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to believe that. I'm not going to trust in my emotions. I'm not going to trust in my, the trauma. I'm not going to trust in what my flesh wants or anything else. And so that's, that's been my process of healing. Good. Yeah. Sounds like you're getting through it. That's great. Well, yeah, it is. Um, but, you know, little by little, I mean, you know, God doesn't show me like any child SRA, you know, doesn't give us everything all at once. It's like, well, here, here's here's all the files. Here's all the papers, you know, have, have a good time. You know, there is. I'm going to dump it all now and, you know, just have fun going through it all. So, you know, he knows what we need and what we don't need, what's going to be of help and what isn't going to be of help. Right. And, and like a lot of people, you know, it's like, I don't blame God. It's like God, God did not, this was not God's will that that happened to me. You see, and so that is not his will that children suffer at the hands of Satanists, you know, to be ritually abused. But it is his will, you know, that, um, that we 
overcome, that we can be saved and delivered, that we can believe on him and that he will he will bring us through it. You know, he'll either bring us through it or he'll take the circumstances out of our way, and sometimes both. So, um, you know, that's pretty much the way it is. I mean, you know, God God does not tempt anyone. He's not the author of evil. So his his ways are for good, you know, only to uh, to bring good and not to harm, you know, to to be uh, of help and not to harm anyone. Which so, is really good to understand that so yes. that you can heal. Because a yes. lot of people think, well, God, you know, we talk about allowable will. So because God didn't stop it, they say that means he wanted it. So I'm glad you say, no, he didn't. Oh, my goodness. No, absolutely not. Yeah. 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 Yeah, now I think if I wasn't like my cousin, you know, she wasn't raised in the solid Christian foundation like I had. I mean, she was raised in the church, but it was this occult Christian church. So her faith was never really real, although, you know, so she was she didn't have the will to resist like I did, you know, to where I mean, I suffered like when I was suffering, she was living a high old life, you know, like a normal teenagers and young people do but yeah i was suffering because you know i that that wasn't for me you know so because i knew god i know god you know i'm not i didn't choose to believe at that because she she doesn't know better she didn't know better and the the stronghold is there for a lot of these um child sras that they don't understand the power and love of god for them that they can be set free and delivered and saved because it's, it's um, you know, they're, they're equating God, you know, why weren't you there? Why didn't you, you know, and they, they, don't, they don't have the right understanding. Right. Yeah. So I'm glad you're here to say that so people can hear it. You know, I think, too, the fragmented pieces that take so long to, like, put together into the night the way you have like for the listeners to understand that takes a lot of years to try to piece it together like that. And, and yeah. there's a lot of new survivors that have been talking to me and they're very frustrated because of these fragments, mm -hmm. but it's just the way it goes. It is. And it's like when I had the first breakthrough was, um, as I was saying, it was like, it was just, I had this nagging guilt, like, like I wanted to get drunk, like I wanted to be drugged. And I, and I was tormented, like you knew that's what you wanted. And I'm like, but it didn't sit right with me. And it was, it was like somebody attacking me and accusing me. And I couldn't, I had no, nothing to come back on it with because I didn't know anything. And then God gave me the revelation, you know, of being on the floor licking shoes to where, you know, through, through another person, you know, at ministry council to understand that, you know, I was reacting because I was drugged. I was reacting to, to prompts and to, um, um, you know, to be suggestions, I guess is what the word I'm looking for. Okay. So, yeah. So um, really um, that was a huge breakthrough for me immediately. When I understood that the level of that went down to like 10% from where it had been like 90%, like, wow, you know, that torment to where I'm like, wow. You know, it's really not true. So that was a big deal for me. And that really, that really was, you know, I just, if you keep asking, God will, God knows, you know, he wants to know, God wants us to know that we want to be involved, you know, to, like I say, to agree with him, 
and so that means you know that he will show us what's true and what's not true um, what to believe but we have to want to and if we ask him you know he'll he'll show us i mean the bible says you know ask and and you will receive you know um it's 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 just very simple but right. we just want we want to interject our own um we want to interject our own um buts and where to fours and what ifs and you know and and you know i i i approach god because i was a child uh when i first believed and because i i had a I feel a supernatural relationship with God when I was little. I mean, I used to be, I could feel the power of the Holy Spirit moving, sitting in church and, and in the worship times. And I mean, I just, I always felt God was with me and I knew God. And, and then to under, come to the understanding of who Jesus was as a child, you know, that brought me to the point as an adult and through this whole experience that, um, you know, I could, I could trust him and I could believe on what's true and what's not true, you know, to trust in, first of all, my own um, willpower and what I was looking for or wanting and what I wasn't wanting, you know, irrespective of what I was being accused of and told and demonized and all of that. Well, and that's the tricky part of healing is all those messages that they put inside, you know, finding them and then battling it with what the word of god says you know right right it's it's complicated to heal so that's why only god can do it that's right because it's just way too complicated right is there anything you would like to say to society as a whole society as a whole yeah um, well um gosh I don't know. I mean, I, I would say to a Christian or non-Christian um, that, um, you know, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And, um, you know, that you would know the creator and how you were created and for what purpose. And that uh, God wishes that none would perish, but all would come to repentance, believe, and be saved. So that's pretty much it. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for joining us today, Bruce. I really appreciate it. I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Thank you. And I thank just, you. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to get on here and share your story. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for asking me. And I feel it's important to come, you know, be frank and to the point, matter of fact, about these things. And, um, you know, and, and Christian body of Christ may not accept all of this right now might be especially the evangelical side of Christianity. But, you know, this is this is pleasing to God, you know, that we come and reason together and not, you know, that we, you know, deny what happened to us, you know, that so so that God can get the glory. Right. And if that's too much for some people, then I'm sorry for them. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, if God can heal this, he can heal anything. Absolutely. I mean, his, yeah. power, his power and love is limitless. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Okay, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Bye now.